Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the true claims of Christianity, why it's believable, and how it makes sense of our lives in the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, Stephen concludes our two-part series on the journey's distinctives. Our core convictions are our beliefs about what make up the essence of Christianity, the things believed everywhere, always, and by all. Our distinctives are beliefs about which genuine Christians may disagree, but that have a significant impact on the life and teaching ministry of our local church. In part two, we cover our doctrinal distinctives. The journey's distinctives on various theological and significant social and ethical issues. We cover topics such as the proper methodology for Bible interpretation, God's design for the family, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the relationship between the church and the nation of Israel, and the millennial kingdom of Christ. Our goal in this series is to be clear about where we stand and to create a culture of thoughtful, charitable dialogue regarding debated and potentially controversial theological issues. So let's take a listen to part two of our series on the journey's distinctives. Yeah, last week, Mace started off our two-part series on the journey's distinctives. We define our distinctives as beliefs about which genuine Christians may disagree, but that have a significant impact on the life and teaching ministry of our church. Your head's in front of the screen. Oh, yeah, let me move out of the way. Can you see them? Yeah, and for the camera, too. What's up? And for the camera, too. And for the camera, too. Gotcha. Um, So, last week, May started off our two-part series on the journey's distinctives. We define our distinctives as beliefs about which genuine Christians may disagree, but that have a significant impact on the life and teaching ministry of our local church. These beliefs are, in a sense, secondary to the core convictions that we as a church hold dear. Our core convictions, which we did a series on last semester, are those beliefs that have been believed everywhere, always, and by all genuine Christians. We require all of our members to affirm our core convictions before being admitted as members. We do not, however, require all of our members to affirm our distinctives. Instead, we ask that our members be willing to sit under teaching from these distinctives and participate in church life in accordance with these beliefs. But we don't require agreement. In fact, we encourage dialogue about these issues with a desire to preserve our unity. Mace covered the first section, our ecclesiological distinctives. It's a hard word to say. Those distinctives were those beliefs which affect the order of and life in the local church. Today, we're covering what we call doctrinal distinctives. We define our doctrinal distinctives like this. Distinctives on various theological and significant social and ethical issues. Generic, isn't it? At some point, we as a church have to decide what to include and not to include in our statement of faith. The doctrines that we discussed last week were those that informed the structure and order of our church, so it was much easier to narrow down what belongs in that category. This category, in essence, is a catch-all for any number of doctrines that we as an elder board feel is relevant to actually publish a statement on, to clarify what our church teaches. This is not an exhaustive list of doctrines. In fact, you could have thousand-page systematic theologies 
full of doctrines that you could put into this kind of section. But even still, it may be more exhaustive than many churches you've experienced before. Other churches may ask, if these doctrines are not primary, then why have articles on these positions at all? Our response is this. First, we as the future elders of this church are called by God to teach the whole counsel of God to our members. Second, you don't have to agree with us on these issues. We have made an extraordinary effort to demonstrate that these issues are not essential to the Christian faith as our core convictions. We do this by only spending two lessons on ten very big doctrines. We also don't believe these are the essence of our identity as the Journey Houston. Uh, these doctrinal distinctives in our bylaws, which we hope to publish soon, only require a unanimous vote of the elder board to amend, whereas our core convictions will require not only a unanimous vote of the elder board, but a 90% vote of affirmation from our congregation to amend. These doctrines that we're discussing today are helpful for us on the elder board to teach you, but they're not essential to the identity of our church. Now that said, are these doctrines important? Absolutely. While not essential to the identity of our church, these doctrines are significant in the Christian life and are relevant to the way we live the Christian life in our cultural context today. I lament that I don't have more time to explain how each of these doctrines affects how you live your life. And I lament that I don't have as much time to expound on the glories of God that are revealed in each of these doctrines. Instead, I humbly present these doctrines to you. We don't boast in them. We can only boast in the God to whom these doctrines point us. So if you have any questions, which I'm sure you're bound to have, please always feel, to start, feel free to start a conversation with me and Mace. Um, and we hope that in our church, these, these meetings, sermons, lessons, that these aren't the final place that we talk about these things, that we, we have conversations over dinner and coffee and lunch um, in one-on-one -on -one meetings and in group uh, hangouts as well. So, uh, so don't be afraid and don't, don't feel like you can't come up and talk to us about these issues. Uh, so let us begin. Our first statement of our doctrinal distinctives is on hermeneutics. Our statement on her hermeneutics says, We will have the most accurate understanding of the Christian story when the Bible is interpreted using a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. This means that the goal of the reader is first and foremost to understand the objective meaning of a text. That is, what the original author intended to communicate to his original audience, using the normal rules of human language. To say that this hermeneutic is literal is to say that we seek the normal or plain meaning of the text, including accounting for any figurative language in the text. Each biblical text has one meaning that is definite and fixed, but this does not negate the validity of multiple significances, including multiple valid applications of the ancient text to our lives today. So what does hermeneutics mean? Hermeneutics is, according to Roy Zuck, the science and art by which the meaning of a biblical text is determined. It's how we interpret the Bible, how we determine meaning from the Bible. Now, Bible interpretation is important. If the Bible is, as our biblical value says, our ultimate authority, then we need to ensure that we're interpreting it properly. And we do this through sound hermeneutics. Now, don't let the word hermeneutics scare you. We do hermeneutics all the time. Let's take this as an example. If I get a text from my wife, Sophia, saying, are you leaving soon? What am I going to do? What's going to happen after I get that text? 
Any ideas? Luke? Bye bye. Bye bye. Probably gonna text back and then leave. Okay. Why do I need to leave? She's <laughs> I just say hop in my car and then just start driving somewhere. <laughs> yep. What's going to start going on in my mind? I wonder about why she's asking where you're supposed to be. Yeah. What is what is she expecting? Yeah, why is she asking me? Uh, a number of thoughts are going to go through my mind. Uh, I'm going to try to figure out what she means. Is she just curious if I'm going to be leaving the house soon? Does she need me to do something at the house before I leave if I am leaving? Did I forget to pick Luca up from school? <laughs> no. I just don't. <laughs> Right, right. With these questions racing through my head, what am I going to do next? Maybe ask clarifying questions. Clarifying questions? Okay, try to get some more context to the question. I'm going to use a series of interpretive principles to figure out what she means. For one, I'm going to look at the literary context of her text. Is there any text prior to this one that gives me a clue what she means? Next, I'm going to look at the historical situation and see if the clock says it's 2 p.m. when Luca gets out of school. This is hermeneutics. We also apply proper hermeneutical principles to the Bible to understand what it means. Our article on hermeneutics explains what we believe to be sound hermeneutical principles. And I can sum it up like this. To understand what the Bible means, you read it like you would any other book. We read it like a piece of literature because it is one. It's a book. God gave us a book to read. Now this book is inspired by God. It's divine in its origins. Therefore, the content in the book is inerrant. But it is a book. It has genres like narrative, legal documents, poetry, letters. And we read those texts like we would read any other literature of that genre. There's no secret knowledge needed to understand it. But here's the problem. And why we included this article in our statement of faith. What was once simple has now become obscure and complicated for various reasons. For one, literacy in America is just not in a great place. Second, Bible literacy in particular is in a worse place because we're often trained to read the Bible in a way that obscures the meaning of the text. And third, the secular story has immersed our culture in a philosophical ocean that we aren't even aware we're swimming in, and that is the ocean of relativism where there is no such thing as objective truth. And meaning, even when you're reading a book, is more in the eyes of the reader than it is in the one who intended to communicate the message. So therefore, we're going back to the basics. We're breaking down what we believe was once self-evident canons of truth down into its parts. So how do we determine the meaning of a text? First, we assume that objective meaning exists. Second, we assume the meaning is what the author intended to communicate. Third, we assume that the meaning the author intended to communicate is found within the text itself. And fourth, we discover the meaning in those words by using a literal, grammatical, historical principle of interpretation.
This fourth point contains the principles we use to discover the meaning of a text. By literal, I mean the words of the text do not need to be interpreted through a mystical, spiritual, secret, or allegorical lens. That doesn't mean that there can't be symbols or themes or figures of speech based on the context. But if nothing says to the contrary, we can safely assume that the words mean what they say. We also derive meaning from grammar, according to the rules of language, like we would any other book. And lastly, we derive meaning from history. Now by history, we mean that the text was written by someone to someone in a different time and place from where we are today. A professor once told me, as strange as it might sound, the Bible was not written about you, and it was not written to you. It was written for you. Abraham, Moses, David, and Elijah are not symbols for you and me to insert ourselves into the text. Not everything Jesus commanded his disciples to do was intended for us to apply. Yet all of it is significant in understanding how we are to live as Christians. So how do we understand it historically? We seek to understand the context of the original writing. Now there are better and worse ways of doing this. In my example of Sophia's text earlier, it would be weird for me to try and figure out what she meant by turning on the national news. Now, is it possible that something in the news relates to what she sent? Perhaps, but more likely it's largely irrelevant and I'd be doing a disservice to immediately try to interpret her text through that lens. But we do wanna understand it from a historical perspective. And we do that by reading the Bible as a narrative that progresses in history. So we want to use a literal, grammatical, historical, interpretive method to understand the meaning in a text. Now, while this article definitely distinguishes us from the secular story, it isn't something most genuine Christian churches would disagree with. Most theologically conservative-leaning churches would hold to a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. But we believe that consistently applying the principles of the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic leads us to the following doctrines which some churches would disagree on. And we believe to come to different conclusions on those articles requires either abandoning or inconsistently applying a normal literary method of interpreting the Bible. So let's look at those doctrines. Our second doctrinal distinctive is on the family. Our statement on marriage and the family says, an aspect of the truth, goodness, and beauty of the story is God's design for the family. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. The marriage relationship is designed to model Christ's relationship to the church. Therefore, the husband and wife have complementary roles and responsibilities within the marriage relationship while having equal and intrinsic dignity, value, and worth as image bearers of God. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And as the church submits to Christ, the wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. Children, from the moment of conception, are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. Parents are to raise their children to love and serve God, not provoking them, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children are to honor and obey their parents. This is an article on God's design for the family. 
In this incredibly packed statement are numerous issues that are debated in our culture today, ranging from the issue of homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, roles in marriage, how to raise kids, and even the issue of abortion. In fact, out of all our articles, this one will probably result in the most controversy, at least among those steeped in our cultural context. Some of these positions might even be controversial among other genuine Christians. But in an unintentionally poetic fashion, we place this, the most culturally contested issue, after our statement on hermeneutics, because we believe if you get the hermeneutics right, then this article naturally falls into place. In one sense, our statement on the family is a deep dive into anthropology. We believe unequivocally that God created every person from the moment of conception in his own image and therefore has equal dignity, value, and worth, born or unborn, male or female. Amen. We also believe that part of being human is this thing called a family. Now, everyone has a family, regardless of whether you're single or have kids. We all have parents. Now, as a result of the fall, not everyone's family was a healthy family. And we lament that. But we all have a family. And God's original purpose for that family is to be a living representation of his relationship to his people. The family is a living gospel presentation. We believe getting the family right is central to the flourishing of human beings in the world God created. And as a result, Satan wants to do everything he can to corrupt God's design for the family. Marriage is, sent, is the center of that family. One of the key passages in understanding God's design for marriage is Ephesians 5, 22-33. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. In this passage, we see Paul explain how husbands and wives represent Christ's relationship to the church through the way that they relate to each other in marriage. Without the other, they cannot complete that image. Likewise, we see in Ephesians 6, 1-4, that a, parent's understanding, that a parent's understanding relationship with a child who in turn obeys and respects them is an image of God's relationship with his children. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's design for the family is a hotly contested issue today. We believe that life begins at conception. And we believe all the responsibilities we have towards other humans begins at conception. We believe that same-sex marriage is incapable of being true marriage according to God's design. We believe that divorce is against God's design. 
We believe in complementarianism, that husbands and wives have different roles in marriage that complement each other, that husbands are the heads of their wives, and we believe that children should be obedient to their parents. These are hard sayings in our culture, and I believe each of us has experienced a brokenness in this to some degree. Perhaps some of you are unsure of some of these things. And if so, once again, please feel free to talk about it with us. One reason that these are such fault line issues is because our culture is unwilling to talk about them. But we want to create a church culture of investigating and seeking truth, asking questions and learning what we believe, why we believe it, and how it makes sense of the world. That's our doctrine on the family. Our next doctrinal distinctive is our statement on the doctrines of grace. It says, Every part of man is so affected by sin that he cannot and will not turn from sin and believe in Christ. Therefore, God, in his infinite wisdom, chose before the foundation of the world to save the elect by the Holy Spirit overcoming their hardness of heart and bringing them to faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit keeps those saved by his grace to the end. Christians can look confident in the sovereignty of God over their salvation. So these doctrines are traditionally called, in classically reformed circles, the doctrines of grace. In popular theology, you sometimes hear these doctrines referred to as the five points of Calvinism. Maybe you've heard the TULIP acronym before. These doctrines are, in a, are in a sense, a deeper dive into the particulars of homartiology, the study of sin, and soteriology, the study of salvation. In them, we seek to articulate the process by which God takes a sinner who has rejected God, who has a heart that is sinful and depraved, and brings him to saving faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. While we chiefly derive these doctrines from the Bible, we can trace the development of these doctrines in church history all the way back to the controversy between St. Augustine and Pelagius in about 380 to 410 AD. Pelagius was a British monk teaching in Rome. While he agreed with most Christians that the chief problem of humanity was sin, and the only way to be saved from sin was the death and resurrection of Jesus, he taught a fairly new idea that the sins of Adam and Eve did not pass, or that, that Adam and Eve did not pass down their sinful nature to the rest of humanity. But rather, each of us, through our own free will, has a choice to make about whether or not we're going to sin. Sin is a choice we make, a habit we learn. We are not sinful by nature, according to Pelagius. Augustine, on the other hand, who's this man on the left, he rebuked Pelagius' view. Augustine made the case that we inherit original sin, that sin is not only an act of the will, but a nature that we're born into as a result of the trespass of Adam and Eve, our ancient ancestors. As a result... We don't have free will, so to speak. We have a will in bondage to sin. Even from birth, we cannot help but sin. We're born inclined toward evil, enslaved to sin. Our sin nature means that not only are we sinners, but we are dead in our sin, cut off from God. And we have no propensity in our sinful hearts towards good, apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. This is often called total or radical depravity. A helpful verse in understanding depravity is Romans 5, 12 through 21, 
which describes that sin isn't just something we choose, but something we inherit. Now, I don't have time to read through the entire passage in context, but if you take a glance at the screen, I hope you can see in this passage that sin came into the world through one man. But now, all men sin because of that one man. We aren't born with the free will to choose good and reject evil, or vice versa. We're born with a sin nature bent towards sin, and as a result, our hearts are totally depraved. And now, as Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, while Pelagius' view was ultimately condemned as heresy in the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, the specifics of how God intervened to save someone from their sin nature and how that relates to this idea of free will would become a centuries-long debate that lasts even until this day. During the Reformation of the 15th and 16th centuries, both Martin Luther and John Calvin, who were the central figureheads of the Reformation, were unashamedly Augustinians, and they called upon the writings of Augustine to defend their understandings of human free will, or of the human will. Martin Luther even wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, as a response to one of his literary opponents, Erasmus. In this book, he argues that original sin incapacitates humans from working out or even cooperating with God in our own salvation. It's not just that we're incapable of being righteous. We don't even want to be righteous. We don't want to be holy. We act in accordance with our sin nature and are unable to do otherwise unless God changes our wills to desire him. It would only be by grace that we could even believe in him. Hence, the doctrines of grace. The emphasis of these doctrines being on the fact that there was no act of human effort or will, even in believing in God, that earned salvation. Every movement from beginning to end was completely by the grace of God. John Calvin's soteriology and his Institutes on the Christian Religion were so influential in the development of these doctrines of grace that the doctrines themselves are often attributed to his name. One holding them is often called a Calvinist. He proposed throughout his institutes that not only was God's intervention required, but this entailed God actively deciding who would be saved, since not all are ultimately saved. The Bible calls this act predestined, and it calls the subjects of this predestination the elect. Calvin derives this from verses like, Romans 8, 29-30, which says, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. He also deduces it from a theology of the sovereignty of God. To Calvin, either God is sovereign or he is not. As Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. So for a while during the Reformation, this was the predominant understanding of the depths of soteriology. Every part of man is so affected by sin that he cannot and will not turn from sin and believe in Christ. Therefore, God, in his infinite wisdom, chose before the foundation of the world to save the elect by the Holy Spirit overcoming their hardness of heart and bringing them to faith in Jesus. But following the Reformation, a new debate emerged. A synod was convened in Dordrecht, Netherlands, often called the Synod of Dort, to settle a new dispute that arose between the churches that followed in the theological footsteps of John Calvin 
and a new group of theologians who followed the teachings of a man named Jacobus Arminius. To be clear, Jacobus Arminius is not Pelagian. He's not a Pelagius. He's not a heretic. This is more of an in-house debate among genuine Christians. And anyone who holds to his understanding of soteriology should not be treated as such by any means. In fact, we may have people in this room who hold to those beliefs. I wouldn't be surprised. Arminius largely agrees on the concept of original sin, that our sinful nature prevents our wills from desiring God. But he saw conflict between the idea that God predestined some to salvation and verses like 1 Timothy 2.4, which says that God desired for all men to be saved. Does his will contradict his own actions? He also took issue with the implications that God would predestine people to salvation because it also implied that he predestined to send people to hell, which he thought would make God responsible for sin. Instead, Arminius proposed that God's election does not entail predestining them to either salvation or condemnation. Instead, God elects all those who would have been saved through something called prevenient grace. In prevenient grace, God enables man's will to accept God, but he does not force them to be saved. He opens their heart to the possibility of being saved, but he leaves the decision to the free will of the person to either choose or reject him. The Synod of Dort would evaluate Arminius' arguments and ultimately rejected them. In response, they proposed five points that they affirmed. These points are often called the five points of Calvinism. We elders at the journey affirm classical Calvinism. We would largely agree with the five points of the Synod of Dort. But we summarize our position in this article rather than just expressly stating the five points to clarify what exactly we believe. We believe that we're depraved and in need of regeneration from the Holy Spirit. That God chose us in eternity past to be saved. That the whole process of salvation is his responsibility. And that he will keep us in his love to the end. We believe this doctrine brings us great comfort. In the midst of doubts and fears about our salvation, do I believe enough? Am I strong enough of a believer? Those questions can come up, but we can have assurance that God is the one who will carry us on our spiritual journey to our eternal home, not our own wills. We need not fear our own sinful hearts, for it was never our own righteousness that freed us from those hearts. It was all the grace of God to the glory of his name. Now, I imagine among all of these doctrines, we will have the most diversity in our own local church among brothers and sisters on this one. So please know, if you take an Arminian position or any other position that's not the classical Calvinist position, we do not condemn you, we do not judge you, and we pray that this would be a, the beginnings of a dialogue uh, in a spirit of charity and grace, and that we can hold to different understandings of this issue. Um, in our local church context. And please hold us accountable for being as charitable with you. So that's our position on the doctrines of grace. All right, so I'm going to cover the final two sections together because they're closely related. These are our articles on the church in Israel in the millennial kingdom. In a sense, these are deep dives into ecclesiology, our study of the church, and eschatology, our study of the end times. We'll give it a shot at explaining them, and if you have any questions or concerns following this, following this lesson, which I'm sure you'll have, please feel free to talk with me at dinner afterwards, or any time afterwards. So our position says, 
The church is the new covenant people of God made up of believing Jews and Gentiles and is distinct from ethnic national Israel. As a new covenant community, the church is not under the old Mosaic covenant or law in the same way as the nation of Israel was, though Christians are still to reflect the character of God as revealed in the law. While the people of Israel are dispersed because of their corporate rejection of Jesus, according to God's grace and his covenant with the patriarchs, they will one day corporately repent and be regathered in the promised land in preparation of Christ's kingdom. Our article on the Millennial Kingdom says, The great hope of the Christian is the end of the story. Believers eagerly await the imminent return of Christ when he will reign upon the earth with his resurrected saints for 1,000 years in fulfillment of all the biblical covenants before judging the living and the dead and establishing the eternal state in the new heavens and new earth. So these articles, what they're doing is they're clarifying our specific understanding of the details of the biblical story, of the Christian story as we find it in the Bible. If you want a categorical context for these articles, it kind of falls in the debate between dispensationalism and covenant theology, or amillennialism versus premillennialism versus postmillennialism. And if you want to know like what category we would fall in, it would probably be a dispensational premillennial side of things. Once again, I'm not trying to convince you of those categories. I'm merely expressing what the elders of our church's position is on these subjects. As Michael Block says, in his book, Has the Church Replaced Israel? At the heart of the controversy, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't have the, I didn't have the article up when I read it out. Sorry. So back to what Michael Block says. In his book, Has the Church Replaced Israel? He says, at the heart of the controversy is the question, does the church replace, supersede, or fulfill the nation Israel in God's plan? Or will Israel be saved and restored with a unique identity and role? We elders at The Journey believe that if you consistently follow a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, that you arrive at the conclusion that the kingdom of Israel is central to God's kingdom program in the Old and New Testament and in prophecy concerning the future of that program. These promises are found in various covenants that God made with Israel, through the patriarchs, through the kings, and even through the prophets. And some of the specifics of these covenants have not been fulfilled yet. We await their fulfillment in the future. The church is a unique work of God in this time between the exile of Israel and Christ's return to restore the kingdom to Israel. And in this unique time, anyone who comes to faith in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, is engrafted into a unique body, the body of Christ, the church. So how do we get to this conclusion, and where do the disagreements start and end? Well, let me begin with our agreements with all Christians everywhere. All Christians affirm that the hero of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the protagonist. He is the main character of the story. And all, Christ all Christians agree that the major conflict of the story is sin and death. And all Christians agree that any account of the story that finds salvation in anyone but Jesus Christ is a false account of the biblical story. Now, not as many Christians, but an increasing number of Christians who disagree with us on these distinctives would agree with us on this that the kingdom of God is too often neglected as a central theme in any exposition of the biblical story. And we think that's the first step in understanding our position. As Alva McLean says, the kingdom of God is, in a certain, in a certain and important sense, the grand central theme of all Holy Scripture. 
In the biblical doctrine of the kingdom of God, we have the Christian philosophy of history. That's from his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. From the beginning of humanity, God's desire was that a theocratic kingdom would rule as sub-rulers, sub-kings over the earth in his image. And this theme persists throughout the whole Bible until the end of the story, when a kingdom as God intended is finally and eternally ruling over the earth. Like any theme, that theme needs to be resolved, that loose ends need to be tied together. In literature, we call this the denouement, or the, the tying of the loose ends. So we believe that the kingdom theme will be resolved in the future, in the denouement of history, the millennial kingdom. And like I said, there are a number of Christians who, as they dive into the Bible as a cohesive story, are realizing this. The next step that people would largely agree with us on is that Israel is the predominant referent of the kingdom throughout the Old Testament. As you trace the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, unless we're applying an extremely hyper-metaphorical or hyper-allegorical method of interpretation, we must come to the conclusion that just about every reference to God's desire for a kingdom on the earth, from Genesis 12 on to Malachi, is about the ethnic, physical, geopolitical nation of Israel. And once again, a large majority of Christians agree with us on that. Israel was clearly God's kingdom program on the earth for the time before Christ's incarnation. The next step is probably where we would, we would diverge from, um, from a good number of Christians on this issue. Uh, we believe that God's plan for the kingdom through Israel has not changed in the New Testament. Now, we all agree that something has changed, and some things have. We don't make sacrifices in a temple. I don't raise animals to go sacrifice in a temple on a regular basis. Uh, I eat pork. Uh, I eat food and animals that, that uh, the Jews would have called unclean in their law. Something has changed. And we all agree that there is continuity in the promises of God in some way. God doesn't double back on his promises. He is faithful. But the disagreement is in how things have changed and how God is faithful. You see, while Israel was central to God's kingdom program throughout the entire Old Testament, there is now currently no kingdom of Israel reigning on the earth. Even when Jesus arrived on the scene, Israel was ruled by the Romans. The story lays out that Israel, through their disobedience and rejection of God, and in a parallel fashion to Adam and Eve in the garden, has been expelled from the kingdom, from their land. And they were subjected to the rule of Gentile nations. And even with the, the small regathering that happened at the end of, uh, of uh, the end of, at the end of the exile, um, they were still subjected to Gentile rule. And that dispersion lasts even to this day. Now, I, I do know that there is a geopolitical nation called Israel uh, that exists today. But, but know that even among dispensationalists, there's disagreement about what exactly that political entity in Israel right now means for God's kingdom plan. We do agree that right now there is certainly no king on a physical, literal throne in Jerusalem today, uh, with a border as large as that which is promised in the Bible. Uh, it's exceedingly larger than what is currently in uh, the, the ancient Middle East right now, or in the Middle East right now. So this, this absence of the, the, the kingdom, as described in the prophecies promised to Israel, presents some big questions. God has promised throughout the Old Testament that Israel would dwell in the land forever, 
that they would not be forsaken, they would not be forgotten, that there would be a king on the throne of David forever. And there seems to be promises in the prophets during Israel's exile that God would still fulfill those promises. But if you look around today, either those promises have changed, those promises have been fulfilled differently than Israel would have expected, or those promises are still in the future. So what of God's plan for the kingdom? And does Israel still play a role in it? We believe God's kingdom plan for Israel has not changed. And this is where most of maybe the disagreement comes in. Here are some, here are some possible answers to this predicament. Possible answers. Some say that the church is and always has been Israel. That Israel in the Old Testament was the church and that the church today is Israel. That God's kingdom program has merely changed in nature from being a physical geopolitical kingdom to being a spiritual kingdom where there's no Jew or Greek. And so now the, the, the special promises made to the Jewish people uh, of the king, about the kingdom of God have now been uh, are now present in the church. Some say the church has actually replaced Israel as God's people in his kingdom program, meaning that the church is distinct from Israel, but because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, those promises that were made to Israel have been removed from Israel and given to the church. And lastly, some say that the church and Israel, or at the very least the church and the kingdom, are distinct entities in his kingdom program. That the church began at Pentecost, and therefore aspects of the promises made to Israel, such as the physical land promises and king covenants, and promises to Israel about the posterity of their kingdom, still remain to be fulfilled in the future. Uh, the elders at our church hold to this position, that the church is distinct from Israel. In God's kingdom program. Therefore, we believe that the specific promises that God made to Israel will still be fulfilled in the future when Christ returns. Okay, so what does this mean for our doctrinal distinctives? First is that the church is not under the Mosaic law in the same way Israel was. So we believe that the, the church being made of Jew and Gentile and being distinct from the kingdom from the kingdom as it was described in the Old Testament means that we were not we're not inheriting the Mosaic law and we don't need to decipher what is still applicable for us today in the same way uh, that maybe a Jew would need to. Uh, we're cautious in our attempt to interpret God's instruction to Israel as if we are Israel and his demands for them uh, and interpreting his demands as directly applying to us. I think this is intuitive to some degree. Uh, as often as we compare ourselves to David, if I attempt to kill a Goliath in the name of God, I may not survive. Um, if I try to take an army with the church to go conquer a, a pagan nation or something like that, uh, I am not assured success the same way that the kingdom of Israel was assured success. And I think this even, or we believe that this even applies to the law. For instance, we don't believe that we're still bound to observe the Sabbath, for instance. We think it's wise to implement rest in our schedule and set aside time for God, but we don't believe that we're accountable to the Sabbath in the same way Israel was. That was a command given to the kingdom of Israel to set them apart from the nations, to remind them of the future Sabbath rest that God would provide for them. And 
the kingdom in the in the eternal kingdom. And and to Israel, if you didn't adhere to the Sabbath, you could be executed for not following the Sabbath law. Uh, and so, we believe it's 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 difficult to pick and choose what we're applying to ourselves and what we're not. And we think that that's because uh, the law was God's character expressed in a legal system for a specific geopolitical theocratic kingdom on the earth in Israel. Now, we are still, as human beings, accountable to God's character. And God's character is revealed in the law. So if we want to know how we are to live as human beings, we can look to the law as an example for our, our, our guide. But there are also aspects of the Mosaic Law that were designed to distinguish Israel from the other nations as a political people. And that leads me to my second point. We believe the blessings and hopes of a literal, physical, geopolitical kingdom that the whole Bible is building up to are, in fact, literal. But we joyfully await the return of Christ to establish it through his people, Israel. We find this hope in Revelation 20 where the resurrected will rule with Christ for a thousand years. The thousand-year kingdom is called the millennial kingdom. Millennium, one thousand years, millennial kingdom. This, what we believe about the millennial kingdom being future, after Christ's return, is called premillennialism. The idea that Christ returns before, pre, the millennial kingdom, before the millennial kingdom, the culmination of God's kingdom program. This is distinct from amillennialism, ah being the prefix that means without, or, or uh, without the millennial kingdom, which believes the promises of a physical geopolitical kingdom have been fulfilled in the church spiritually. That there's no literal geopolitical thousand-year kingdom. It's it's happening right now in the church. It's also distinct from postmillennialism, which says that Christ will return after we, the church, establish a literal geopolitical kingdom either through the proclamation of the gospel, through moral progression, or as seen in history through military conquest. Notice that our understanding of the kingdom and how it will be fulfilled actually has a profound effect on how we live our life. Do we believe it's our job as the church to establish a theocratic kingdom on the earth? And if so, how do we do it? Or do we believe that it is up to Christ and his, his returning on a white horse with uh, with the robe dipped in blood, with the sword coming out of his mouth, to establish his kingdom and overthrowing the forces of darkness on the earth. And then, what do we do in the meantime as we wait for him? These are just some application points that we need to consider. And that concludes our series on our doctrinal distinctives. As I wrap up, I want, I want to reiterate some things. These distinctives are not the identity of our church. The reason we have this lesson at all is that we want to be clear as elders about where we stand on these issues. We want to be upfront with you about these things. Every church has a position on this to some degree. When you open up your Bible, unless you're going to walk through every single position on that text and then not take a stance on it, a church has a position. A pastor has a position on these issues. We want to be clear about where we stand on these issues. We don't want to sit in the shallow end of the theology pool at our church. We don't want to be afraid to dive into the deep end and search the depths of the knowledge of God. But we also don't want to let these doctrines divide us and destroy our unity. We want to encourage conversations on these topics, to dialogue about where we disagree and rejoice on what we do agree on. Namely, that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. So once again, as we did last week, 
we choose to express this, this commitment to what we call Catholicity. Uh, Catholic, uh, while it is the name of a denomination of churches, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Catholic originally means universal. It's this term, this idea of there being a, uh, in the midst of a diverse amount of churches in our world, in the midst of a ton of different churches that are all local expressions of the church, there is one unified, universal church, Catholic Church. And that church is what unifies us all in the body of Christ. Um, we, would, we would disagree with the idea that that church is found in an institution. We believe that it's found spiritually in the body of Christ among everyone who is united by faith in him. Uh, and so and it's an expression of our Catholicity. We unite in affirming those beliefs in the form of the Nicene Creed. So if you look in your handout... Um, you can find the, the words of the Nicene Creed. And what I'd like us to do is to stand and recite this creed, um, which is going to become a normal expression of our Catholicity at our church. So we all recite the Nicene Creed with me. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.